another question for the Prime Minister. One of his Liberal members, the member for Beaches East York, thinks that the Prime Minister isn't going far enough when it comes to legalizing marijuana. He wants the Prime Minister to, and I quote, decriminalize all drugs. There's a good reason that all drugs aren't legal, and that's because they ruin the lives of our loved ones. So will the Prime Minister unequivocally denounce the comments that his Liberal colleague made and immediately commit to Canadian families that he will not put our youth at risk in legalizing tough, hard drugs like heroin and cocaine? Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. The member of Parliament for Beaches East York. Remember, so you just heard former Conservative leader Ronna Ambrose go at me a bit in the House of Commons in early 2017 because I'd called for the decriminalization of all drugs as a step towards regulating all drugs according to their respective harms. Of course, what Ambrose failed to mention, I'm sure she'd intended to but just ran out of time, is that my position is well grounded in the evidence. Many experts have called for treating drug use as a health issue, for removing the criminal sanction for possession, and for the strict regulation of all drugs as an answer to so many harms, not only related to the potential harms of problematic drug use, but importantly also as an answer to the overwhelming harms of prohibition itself. On this episode, I'm joined by a member of the Global Commission on Drug Policy and a woman I look up to a great deal, Louise Arbour. In addition to her role at the Commission, Louise has taken on really an incredible number of impactful and interesting roles in her life. She served as the Chief Prosecutor of War Crimes before the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, as a Justice of our Supreme Court of Canada, as the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, and as a Special Representative of the UN Secretary General for International Migration. I've looked up to Arbour ever since I read her dissent in Malmo Levine, in which she articulated the harms of prohibition and really the absurdity of cannabis prohibition in particular. And she has been a commissioner with the Global Commission on Drug Policy since its inception 10 years ago. Louise, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Good to see you. Now, you've led a fascinating career. You've spent relatively short periods of time doing really interesting things, but you've spent 10 years now with the Global Commission on Drug Policy. So for those who are less familiar, what is the commission and why does its work matter? It's actually, of all the organizations that I've joined, this is for me the most interesting and impressive one. Essentially, it started about 10 years ago as a result of an an initiative from former Latin American heads of states. I mean, there is a whole bunch of them who felt that the so-called war on drugs was putting a disproportionate adverse impact on so-called countries of production and didn't seem to have any impact on countries of consumption. And then in between, there were countries of transit and so on. So Latin America was terribly adversely impacted by the kind of general worldwide war on drugs. And I think they reached out to me First of all, I didn't know anything about them. It's not a government organization, right? It's individuals. And it was funded. The seed funding early on came from uh, the Open Society organization, George Soros, uh, Richard Branson of Virgin, a couple of people who thought this is an issue. And I think somebody sent me a draft report just to, to comment on. And I did. And I had had some understanding of some of the issues through a case that came to the Supreme Court of Canada when I was there, the case of Malmo Levine. So I had done a lot of work on the harm or less thereof of drug abuse and so on. 
anyway, they asked me to join the commission. So I was one of the few non-Latin American people who got on board. And I remember in those days, our greatest ambition was so-called break the taboo against having an intelligent public conversation about the failure of the war on drugs. And we thought if we could just open up the public space to have this conversation, to look at the adverse effect of this law enforcement prohibition model, as opposed to a public health model. These were the very early days of harm reduction, uh, you know, safe injection sites, all these conversations. We just were hoping to open the debate. And I think we've gone beyond that project. Ten years later, the conversation, it gets overtaken by other issues very rapidly now by the pandemic. And if it's then it was the war on terror. There were other issues, but it's always there. And I think it's so important that we remain engaged. And even interrelated, I mean, we've seen because of isolation measures, the opioid crisis has worsened here in Canada. We have seen international terrorism that has been financed by the illicit drug trade in a significant way. Your work through the commission has certainly had a great impact on me and my thinking. Ten years ago, the commission wrote, as you say, that we need to break the taboo, recognize the war on drugs is a failure, and that the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that repressive strategies will not solve the drug problem and that the war on drugs has not and cannot be won. It also goes on to say, and the commission has said many times over the years, that the war on drugs causes more problems than it proposes to solve. Here in Canada, we clearly face an opioid crisis. About 17,000 Canadians have died since the beginning of 2016 alone because of a toxic and poison drug supply, which is a consequence of prohibition. There are other problems too. Walk me through, from the commission's perspective, the various harms associated with prohibition of drugs. Well, they are numerous. And in fact, if we could capture this conversation in a nutshell, I think what became apparent is that there is actually more harm done by the enforcement of prohibition than by the sector of abusive drug consumption. The recreational use of drugs is overwhelmingly not particularly harmful, certainly a lot less harmful than, say, the consumption of alcohol or tobacco, which is extremely harmful. So at some point, I think we had to come to realize that we were causing more harm, both domestically, for instance, in the case of marijuana, by you know creating criminal records for youth who would live with that burden for the rest of their lives for nothing, for no good reason. But international, I'll give you one example of the harm that this prohibition model is put in place that the commission has documented. There's a particular report on that, which is access to essential medicines. First of all, the international environment on drug prohibition is controlled by international treaties, like conventions. And of all the international law I know, it's probably the worst by far. Actually, it's very ironic. There are lots of international instruments that are better, much better than most domestic law, including in Canada. You know, the International Covenant on uh, Civil and Political Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is better than Canadian law. It's very aspirational. In the case of narcotics prohibition, the international framework is a huge impediment to progress. And yet at the origin, what it was meant to do is, you know, encourage health and, and prevent cross-border trafficking of dangerous substances, very badly classified. So one of the harm that it has produced is that in some countries who follow very closely the prohibition against importing, say, opioids, 
the population are deprived of access to essential medicine, like medicine you need in anesthetics during operations. So because this prohibition is so intense, you have people dying of cancer or having to undergo surgery without appropriate or frankly, virtually any access to pain relief. So all these aspects were very hidden. As you also mentioned, of course, prohibition, we know it in every respect, fosters illegal trade. And illegal trade then helps finance all kinds of other illegal activities. And so it, it kind of corrupts the international system. There might have been an overemphasis on the connection between drug trade and the financing of terrorism. But there's certainly a lot of connection between drug trade and the huge profits that are made there and all kinds of other criminal mega criminal enterprises. Well, pause there because it's interesting the debate we have in Canada, and, and even I'm culpable of this. I, I've really pushed strongly for reforming our outdated and, and harmful drug laws, but I've really emphasized the need to, in the cannabis context, to treat Canadians as the responsible adults they are and to get organized crime out of the way. But on other illicit drugs, really emphasize the public health approach and moving away from the stigmatization of people who use drugs and, and really embracing the the evidence to end the opioid crisis. But one real serious harm, and you mentioned the commission was started by leaders out of Latin America. The war on drugs, by creating such significant profits for organized crime, has really had a destabilizing effect on producer regions and fueled corruption and violence. And that's not a conversation we have in Canada enough, I don't think. Well, absolutely. It just seems like it's somebody else's problem, or it's not really their problem. Certainly, American policies, for instance, towards Latin America as producing countries has led to crop eradication and so on that were catastrophic in the same way that all efforts in Afghanistan, for instance, to eradicate poppy production has had terrible effects on rural communities who live off that kind of product for agricultural purposes. So this is very obscured, I think, in the the Canadian type conversation or throughout kind of Europe democratic debates because people focus on what they see in their own backyard. Our argument was yet to move from prohibition to public health. We knew there was a terrible harm caused by prohibition itself and the lack of public health initiatives was also very severe. The connection, for instance, between the spread of HIV uh, hepatitis C amongst intravenous drug users was very well documented. The more prohibitive the regime was in a country, the highest the rate of infection for diseases that are communicable that way. And you remember what it took in Canada to get safe injection sites, to get this kind of harm reduction initiative. It took, again, the Supreme Court of Canada. The irony of it is then in the harm reduction initiatives, particularly in the Vancouver East Side and so on, and now on the claim for decriminalization of personal possession of all drugs, it's very ironic to see often at the forefront of this argument, chiefs of police who understand the futility of what they're asked to do. And at the same time, the public health officials who realize also the impediment that it creates for them. But as you said, the bigger picture, what it does to the kind of geopolitical environment of Latin America Mexico is a very good example. The contamination of democratic institutions through corruption, for instance, because of the enormous profits that are generated in these criminal enterprises. So it deprives the government of sources of income through taxing, and it generates terrible 
corruption opportunities that then erode the efforts that we spend collectively, Western countries, in trying to boost democratic institutions in these countries. You mentioned the Supreme Court, in, in that case, unanimously defending insight its benefits have been proven, it saves lives, and that has allowed over time an expansion of safe consumption sites to save even more lives. You were though a dissenting member in Memo Levine, which you've referenced, where you wrote, a person who has not really done anything wrong is a person whose conduct caused little or no reason risk of harm or whose harmful conduct was not his or her fault. I am of the view that section seven of the charter requires not only that some minimal mental element be an essential element of any offense punishable by imprisonment, but also that the prohibited act be harmful or pose a risk of harm to others. And in this case, even problematic substance use harms the individual who is consuming, and that requires a public health response, not a criminal response, which would only exacerbate those harms and stigmatize the user. But you mentioned the vast majority of recreational use is not subject to those same harms. I read from the commission's reports over the years, 250 million people use drugs and only 10% of that is problematic use. So when we look at the harms of criminal records themselves, which you emphasize in Memo Levine, we have even this year, Biden's office is firing people for cannabis, for God's sake. I mean, people can't get employment because of criminal records housing because of criminal records. There are so many differing harms of different degrees, but the criminal sanction itself is so very harmful, which at least then at a minimum, the first step ought to be this conversation about decriminalization. Yeah, it gets harder as you because it actually was a relatively easy conversation in Canada. It took some time, but when it got to the crunch, the decriminalization of personal possession and use of marijuana, and that's what I tell my colleagues elsewhere in the world, they're you know, there are several countries who've moved in that direction, not that many. But when they ask me, so what's been the consequence in Canada of decriminalization of marijuana? I say, ah, nothing. Yeah, shrug your shoulders. Half of Canadians would self-report that they consume cannabis when it was illegal. It's, a, it's kind of the non-event of the decade. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. It, it had some kind of perverse effect. All of a sudden, you saw a mild obsession with driving while impaired by drugs, as though this risk arose only when marijuana was legalized. Right. It was always there. It's it right. the only thing that is, you know, that sort of impairment through whatever substance or incident is an issue when you're operating machinery or driving. But it has nothing to do with, as you said, the fact that it's well documented that the recreational use of all kinds of substances has been with humankind, essentially forever. In the Canadian context, while we were working towards the regulation of cannabis, there was this conversation sparked by a number of us, but Murray Rankin is the name that I have in my head because he's been, I, I, th I thought he was the smartest person in the House of Commons when he was there, but he was pushing for the decriminalization of cannabis in the interim. And I joined in those efforts to push and, and the government said, well, we're working towards regulation and we're not going to decriminalize in the interim. And my message was, obviously, decriminalization is a half measure, but a half measure is better than no measure at all. And when we look at other illicit drugs and the impact that decriminalization can have, it's not a full answer. I want to get to what the full answer is. But the commission has said in past reports that we need to replace the criminalization and punishment of people who use drugs with the offer of health and treatment services. And there are jurisdictions that have done just this in different ways. 
Portugal being the example that I think many Canadians have learned about and continue to learn about, where in 2001, they decriminalized drugs, moved it to an administrative model, and we saw no significant increase in drug use. We see a significant increase, I think 60% or so of people seeking treatment. Obviously, incarceration costs go down, drug overdose deaths go down. Overwhelmingly positive, simply by one, changing the law, and then two, really investing in treatment services and health services. This seems like a path Canada should go down at a minimum. I think this is, frankly, in terms of the work of the commission, I think this is where we are now. We've done, as I said, if you look at all the reports, they're very informative, they're all peer-reviewed, they're really great, really good work on you know, harm reduction. Well, you know, the, the commission has these five pathways, which is essentially always put health and the well-being of people first, access to essential medicines, uh, decriminalize personal possession, go after the real culprits, which is organized crime. And the fifth one is the tough one, get governments to take back control and regulate. And I think decriminalization, I think you're right. You have to start. It's particularly challenging to regulate in a federal context because you have partners. In some cases, they're more progressive. I think we saw what happened in BC, for instance, with Insight. But then you have other cases where the question of the, the marketing, all the, the kind of commercial aspect, if you wait until you have all that in place and everybody agrees on what's the best way to regulate, nothing's going to happen and we're going to continue to cause a lot of harm. So I think first, it's critical to decriminalize personal possession, consumption. And of course, people have to understand that everything, all products are regulated you know, the content of what's in your toothpaste container is regulated. They are a quality, you know, product uh, quality control. And of course, the more potentially harmful or dangerous the substance, the tighter the regulations. We've gained a lot of experience, I think, with decriminalization and regulation of the cannabis market, whether exactly that model is appropriate for other substances may or may not be exactly the case. But I think the first step has to be to stop penalizing people and to keep expanding the harm reduction measures. So to shift from prohibition to public health, we need to reduce prohibition and increase public health measures while we have conversations about what is the best regulatory framework, uh, both at the federal level, but in our case, throughout a country that has a different configuration. You know, this goes back a long time. In fact, I remember the first Canadian commission on the recreational use of drugs was the Ladane Commission. What was that, mid-70s? Yeah. And as I said, it tends to be pushed back as a kind of chronic issue, and it gets acute when you have the opioid crisis and then fentanyl and death, and then it gets overtaken by something else. And with our short electoral cycles, governments get easily distracted. or So it takes a huge amount of effort, but we have to be reminded of the local and the global cost of having had this wrong model for so long. And not just that politicians and electoral cycles cause easy distraction, but they also make for difficult politics and, and drug policy. As someone who has ridden about the need to reform our drug laws and decriminalize as a step towards regulation. Then leader Andrew Scheer, he, he had it in a fundraising email blast. You know, it, it becomes very partisan and politicized. I introduced two bills early in, in 2020 
one of which was to fully decriminalize, just delete section four of the CDSA. And the other bill, which I want to get to what you think about it, because the other bill was really focused on an evidence-based diversion framework to limit the ability of prosecutors and police to move forward with charges and prosecutions, which I thought was maybe more politically saleable. In both cases, though, the conservatives again came out screaming about you know, drugs on our street corners and the member from Beaches East York wants wants your kids to use drugs or whatever the silliness is. But that politics has been challenging. We, you mentioned insight. I mean, the conservative government of the day fought all the way to the Supreme Court to lose nine nothing at the Supreme Court because it was good politics at that time. We still see provincial governments push back against harm reduction because of politics, despite the overwhelming evidence. The prime minister's obviously cognizant of the politics. When decriminalization rears its head, we got a motion passed in 2018 at the Liberal Convention to recognize the need for decriminalization. And the government at the time, the minister at the time, the prime minister said, we're not thinking about decriminalization. The classic line is it's not a silver bullet, as if that's an answer to not do it. So anyway, I sat down, I had a private member's bill slot that I could move forward with. And as I mentioned, so I had a bill that I sought to fetter the discretion, really, of prosecutors and police, fetter their discretion in keeping with evidence-based principles. And the principles, I'll just rhyme a few off so you have a sense of it, because you probably haven't read my private member's bill. But basically, principle one, problematic substance use should be addressed primarily as a health and social issue. Interventions should be founded on evidence-based best practices and should aim to protect the health, dignity, and human rights of individuals who use drugs and to reduce harm to those individuals, their families, and their communities. Three, Criminal sanctions imposed in respect of the possession of drugs for personal use can increase the stigma associated with drug use and are not consistent with established public health evidence. Four, interventions should address the root causes of problematic substance use by encouraging such measures as education, treatment, aftercare, rehabilitation, and social reintegration. And then finally, principle five, judicial resources are more appropriately used in relation to offenses that pose a risk to public safety. So those are the five guiding principles that prosecutors and police have to consider before they move forward with any action. Now that bill has ultimately, I did not expect it to move so quickly into government hands, but the government in moving forward with a new bill, C-22, has basically incorporated verbatim my private member's bill into that government bill, including those five principles verbatim. And the bureaucrats, to my understanding, have said it is virtually impossible for prosecutors to move forward with, with a prosecution of simple possession if this were to become law. Now, virtually impossible is, that's language I like. <laughs> that's pretty good. It's not perfect though, in that it doesn't completely delete the offense, which would be the better path forward, I think, from a decriminalization perspective. And that's, I think, the view of the commission that it's, we should not have any administrative sanctions for people who use drugs. It, this should be purely decriminalized. But in the political context in which we live, this seems to be a really significant step forward. I hope it's a significant step forward. Yeah, I think it is. You know, the commission wants to remain very ambitious, particularly since we learned our lesson when we thought that just breaking the taboo against having a conversation was an almost unachievable aim 10 years ago. We've gone way past that. So it's really critical that we continue to set the bar, I think, where it should be. I think what has also happened that's very hurtful for people like you trying to advocate that is the erosion of science-based, evidence-based public policy. Public opinion, or at least the perception of where public opinion stands on a lot of issue is a huge impediment to a lot of necessary, I don't want to use the word progressive because it sounds ideological, but I just say evidence-based reform in every field. It's, it's exactly like that. I worked recently on migration and there were lots of instances in which I could make so many interesting parallels between ill-founded 
migration policies and the war on drugs. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to go there. This will only poison an environment where I'm, I'm trying to open up some space for less ideological debate. But in that context, and I've heard that so many times, I had a conversation with a, a British lawmaker in the field of human mobility, right? Cross-border human mobility migration. And in kind of mock exasperation, at some point I said to her, well, surely, Madam Minister, as a public official, it's your duty to advance the public interest. And she stopped and she said, uh, Madam, it's in the public interest that I get reelected. <laughs> and there it is. There, there it is. That is the political challenge with which we live. Which is why I certainly wouldn't stand up and denounce the kind of initiative that you've put forward as a compromise. No, it moves the conversation in the right direction. There are lots of problems with prosecutorial discretion. First of all, yeah. it already has to mobilize a lot of resources in law enforcement that would be much, much better spent elsewhere. You know, are we spending enough money on cyber criminality? Lots of other things, and even on the big issues in illegal drug trafficking and so on. But still, I think it moves the public conversation in the right direction. It will add to an evidence-based capacity to have this conversation. But we live in an era where it's not what you know, it's what you believe that matters. And what you believe depends on who you like. And frankly, who you like half the time is beyond me. So, <laughs> Well, you mentioned the police chiefs helping to lead the way, public, public health experts, police chiefs. We've had the Chief Justice here in Ontario question continued criminalization, prosecutors. Politicians seem the last to realize that we need to follow the evidence in some ways. But I did speak to Police Chief Brian Larkin, who's part of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police that have really pushed forward in a, in a really positive way. Credit to the police chiefs for taking this on and, and moving the conversation forward towards decriminalization and evidence-based drug policy reform. And we talked about the Portugal model and the language that I put forward in the private members bill that is now the government bill. And we talked about how it gets us pretty close to the Portugal model if implemented in the right way. And so far as in Portugal, the police are still there. They can still apprehend someone and then refer that individual to a panel. Now it's an administrative penalties that are on the table. But in this case, we would have the police that would be still the front line. It's not perfect, but police would be the front line. They would refer Frankly, they would refer the individual on a voluntary basis to a healthcare provider, or they would just issue a warning, or they would take no action at all. I can't imagine an instance, if properly applied in keeping with the principles I read to you, that a police officer would, would charge the individual. But if that did happen, there's no way, as I say, the bureaucrats say virtually impossible. There's just no way, if they take those principles seriously, that a prosecutor would follow through. And if the prosecutor is not prosecuting, the cops aren't going to lay charges. And I think we're going to get pretty close to a Portugal model through C-22. But again, even that's not perfect because any sanction, any coercion in relation to someone who is, as you've said, and as the commission has said, are not doing anything wrong, there's no moral wrong here, I think is problematic. And it doesn't fully address the stigma so long as the criminal law is still on the books. Yeah, I think that's true. It's also that in order to say to a police officer, you know, you should refer to a kind of community health care facility, it has to exist. Exactly. So shift resources. I'm not going to get into a defund the police movement. But I, I think what's behind that is that you cannot keep putting resources in something where you would want to see a decrease of activity and not at the same time put in place. Now, we've made a lot of progress, but that's not enough. There, there has to be a lot of resources. And again, I think the stigma that is associated with the fact that it's still the criminal justice system that sent exactly. you there. 
like a mental health issue. You know, we have to wait until there's a contact with law enforcement for the mental health accessibility to, to be triggered. But this will take time to change, but we need to advocate at the same time. And that's where, again, we get into multiple jurisdictions. Is it municipal initiatives or provincial or federal? This has to happen, I think, in, in parallel. The kind of the development of the public health model has to be constantly uh, reinforced. The second thing is, I think there's a culture in law enforcement that has to shift, has to change. So if, in fact, there's still a culture that uh, at the lower level, we see the chiefs of police maybe have better access to science, the big picture, public policy, but on the ground, law enforcement officers, there has to be a change of culture that these are punks and bums. And, and it's easy. You know, it's the low-hanging fruit of law enforcement. You're out on the street, you see these uh, often racialized youth. So maybe there, there has to be incentives, real incentives for moving into the health facilities. And this has to be available and known. And a lot of that is not just legislation, right? It's No, you're bang on because the way that the law is drafted, which isn't as ambitious as I would if I were in charge, but is what I thought was achievable. The way the law is drafted really depends, as you say, upon the way it gets implemented, that it could be implemented in a way with public resources into treatment and harm reduction. We could get to a, a Portugal model, but if it's just on paper and we haven't trained law enforcement in the right way, if we haven't invested in those public health resources, it's not gonna make the demonstrable difference that I want it to make. Well, and furthermore, I really hate to say, but I think with the pandemic and the demands that that's going to put is currently putting it will continue to put on the healthcare system across the country where the provinces are starving in terms of financial resources in the healthcare sector this will become i think even less an immediate priority when we were at the height of the hiv aids crisis and the, the communication of the infection through intravenous drug users there was a kind of a, a port of entry to advocate for safe injection sites and so on. and But now I think this will take the back step, even in the health sector, this will be seen as less a priority as in particular the provinces are, are really gonna scramble to try to get back to their pre-pandemic levels of performance of non-pandemic related issues. And we'll see where the pandemic will take us. So. I mean, there's always a new obstacle in the way of doing, and that's why these incremental steps are important. Better that than the issue disappearing altogether. Well, you may well be right about a battle around finite resources. I hope, though, maybe this is undue optimism, but, but I hope that just as we've listened to public health experts in the course of this pandemic, that there is that emphasis and understanding that we need to listen to public health experts in relation to the opioid crisis, too, that the political battles fall away a little bit more as we go on, I, I hope. Sometimes, not that I despair, but I'm, uh, I wonder why Canada is not prepared to take a stance uh, worldwide on some issues that obviously it's prepared to be quite progressive at home. Uh, again, on migration, I mean, the whole world assumed that Canada was kind of the poster model for good immigration policies. And yet, certainly from my perspective, Canada was very timid mm. in putting itself forward as the country where immigration is a necessity and it can be made to work. 
it was there. I mean, not absent, but nowhere near the front line. And I think the same thing on drug policies. I mean, Portugal has been put forward for a long time as a model. And then there, there's a handful. Switzerland is on yep. If Canada had been more vocal, you know, as a Canadian foreign policy to challenge the international regime, the the narcotics conventions that are so constraining for those who would like to move in the day-to-day kind of political environment, I understand this. You're not going to gain a lot of votes by saying we're going to take a big stance publicly, internationally on these issues, but it's part of changing the conversation and making things easier elsewhere and therefore at home as well. It's the right thing to do, especially when we are defending the policies here at home already. And my understanding is decriminalization can fit within the narcotics frameworks, maybe with some some particular a interpretation, a generous interpretation, yeah. but the regulation of cannabis certainly can't. So we are already offside those international agreements. And if we're going to be offside them, we should be seeking to reform them because they make no sense and they're inconsistent with the evidence. And then so Canada has to decide whether to den- to renounce, basically, to step out of these conventions with a few other sort of like-minded. And of course, there's a cost for that, because if you create that precedent, there are other things where we like the consensus and we don't want to encourage those who would like to step away to do that. So there are some challenges in international law about how to navigate but at the very least, we should be extremely proactive and very loud in trying to reform, even if we start with the classification of drugs. I mean, they're so badly classified in terms of their level of harm and so on. And then just really pushing for a shift from crime to health, increasing uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, interest and capacity on drug consumption and drug abuse. Anyway, lots of things internationally that I think for people like you, it's it may be a step beyond where you want to put your energies, but it's all interrelated. Right. Yeah, it is all interrelated because in the end, if we want to pursue right answers to their conclusion, we need to we, we can't have the international framework operate as a constraint. If anything, right. it should be pushing countries to enhance their domestic policies, not getting in the way of that enhancement, especially when the end goal, as I say, I mean, cannabis regulation just for that one particular drug, but we are now offside the convention. And if regulation is the end goal, and I I do think it is, there's this article I wrote in Vice a number of years ago, that was really an emphasis on decriminalization. But I wrote that in a step towards regulation, we should decriminalize all drug use and possession, and that if we follow public health and harm reduction approach to the logical conclusion, we could save even more lives by regulating all drugs according to their respective harms. And I still believe that to be the case. And in fact, through my reading of the commission in in more recent reports, that has really been a strong emphasis that regulation is the answer. Regulation is not the absence of rules, it is the imposition of rules. And when we have really harmful, potentially harmful substances, we need more regulation. And we need much, much better resources devoted to a collaborative effort against transnational crime, including in drugs. You know, to have once every two years a seizure of 500 kilos of something, it doesn't tell you anything. I mean, this is not it. It's all interconnected to money laundering, to all these other transnational criminal activities. The commission has also written on that. So we need to shift from the local law enforcement going after you know, marginalized groups who are small-time consumers or even small-time dealers, right? We talk about decriminalizing personal consumption and possession. 
The commission also says we have to decriminalize kind of small dealing. The only way we're going to get the police resources away from these low-hanging fruits and into where it has to go, into international cooperation on all the very sophisticated channels. By decriminalizing, we will reduce, as we've it's starting to happen in the marijuana market, you know, the slow rise of the legal market. Overnight, the illegal market doesn't disappear. A lot of people had their suppliers. They were happy with the product. So, you know, you have to become competitive. The prices have to be competitive. Eventually, it will be eradicated. So for other substances, particularly those that are imported, we need to shift resources from this low-level small dealer and consumer law enforcement into much, much more sophisticated efforts. Well, when it comes to cannabis, we, we constantly made the argument here at home. You know, I, w- I added on that we should treat Canadians as responsible adults. But the prime minister was really emphasizing two things. He was emphasizing undercutting organized crime, and he was emphasizing protecting youth. And in both cases, the commission emphasizes those two policy areas in, in other areas of regulation. And so the language of the commission is states must consider the regulation of drugs as the responsible pathway to undermine organized crime. And to that past conversation, I mean, the reason it was Latin American leaders that were creating the commission in the first place because of the destabilization of their countries and the undue influence and corruption as a result of the outsized influence and money from cartels and organized crime. I mean, the answer to those really serious challenges, the, the answer is regulation. The answer to our opioid crisis is regulation. But the answer to those international challenges is also regulation. Yes. And as I said, the international legal framework is not helpful. So there are multiple ways in which public policy has to all be coordinated, starting at our posture on the international reform level, all the way down to the shift from prohibition to health, with resources also shifting as a consequence, increasing what we're prepared to put in the health community outreach and so on uh, sector. And for those who are coming to us for the first time, who are thinking Louise Arbour and Nathaniel Erskine Smith want to regulate all drugs, what are they talking about? Regulation means very different things. I mean, you mentioned everything is regulated in its own way, what's in our toothpaste. But when we look at drugs, alcohol is treated differently from cannabis, is treated differently from morphine, is treated differently from caffeine. We regulate drugs already according to their respective harms, and we regulate them differently. And the commission, I think, usefully walks through five different ways that things can be regulated from your medical prescription model, specialist pharmacy model, licensed retail, bars, licensed premises, and then unlicensed retail. Different drugs would fall into different categories, presumably. And this is the conversation that we should be having that we're not having. Yes. And I think that's where we still need, there still needs a lot of work to be done. First of all, again, in the international framework, these classifications are completely, not only they're outdated, but the minute you put a new product under some kind of classification, within a year, there's three or four new products that have a new name that emerge in the illegal market that, you know, there's a lot of synthetic drugs and so on. So you need to have, I think, an approach that is, uh, they are some products that are enormously harmful. So for people who seek, let's put it this way, in the same way that alcohol for the most part, is overwhelmingly consumed 
through products that are identifiable. You know exactly the alcohol content of what you're drinking. It's regulated. And at the same time, there's advocacy against alcohol abuse. I mean, it's not because a product is legal. With tobacco, it's been the same thing. And over time, societies have come to understand that it has a lot of harmful effects. So you prohibit advertising to children and or advertising in sport at sports events. Lots and lots of very sophisticated types of uh, regulation. But at the very least, you want product quality control. You should be able to know what it is you're putting in your system. And for the few for whom recreational use becomes problematic, abusive, self-destructive, you want every measure that encourages access to help, to treatment, to and if it means maintaining, because the level of addiction is so profound and so difficult to break uh, that you need lifetime support, maintenance of a level of consumption that is not dangerous. We've seen already law enforcement officers in the opioid crisis and so on carrying uh, substances that will prevent, at the very least, an overdose that leads to death. Ten years ago, this was not a popular course of action. It's, But as you said, I think regulation is a very sophisticated area. We have general approaches that the commission is trying to develop. The more we move in that direction, the more there'll be experimental kind of clinical attempts at seeing what works best. Yeah, and I took that. I, I found it interesting. The commission has very ambitious goals, but you are actually outnumbered by politicians in the commission, and they take a very pragmatic approach to say, we want regulation. That's where we need to get to save lives and to address organized crime. But we need it to be cautious, incremental and evidence based and experimental fundamentally. Uh, politics is shifting, I, I think, significantly, and uh, we just need to keep pushing it to make sure it continues to shift. When it comes to addressing, we know that the war on drugs is a failure. We also know that it has negative and disproportionate impacts upon particular people. I've said before that we fear different drugs today because we used to fear different people. And, and we see in Canada, Indigenous people make up too much of our prison population in part because of the war on drugs. Same with Black Canadians. When we look to address the history of wrongs, incarceration and its impacts and more. The commission said, policymakers must not leave behind people and communities most affected by prohibition when legally regulating drug markets. In any transition towards the regulated production, trade and distribution, priority must be given to the interests of individuals and communities pushed into nonviolent illegal activities by poverty, marginalization, or lack of opportunities, and to those who are most harmed by punitive drug enforcement efforts. Cannabis seems a credible place to start the conversation, at least because we have a regulated framework. But there, I think it was a missed opportunity in Canada. We did not take that lesson to heart. We failed at amnesty, and we only moved forward with, with a weak pardon process that, that hasn't done the job. Criminal records have stood in the way of people's participation in the cannabis industry. So by virtue of operating in the illegal space, they can no longer operate in the legal space in some contexts, which I think is problematic. And other jurisdictions in the, in the United States have said the revenue from legal cannabis sales, some portion of the revenue, we've said we'll go to mental health initiatives, that's important too. But in the United States, they've said some portion is also going to be distributed into communities to empower communities through economic opportunity, those communities who have been deeply impacted in a negative way by prohibition. I think that would have been a useful thing for Canada to pursue as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I, but but I think there's also some limits to the comparisons, for instance, in terms of addressing levels of addiction. 
I think in, in the case of cannabis, I think we've come to realize that the question of addiction is not a big right. issue. Very, very good point. Social habit and so on. In the consumption of other drugs, I think resources have to go to mental health issues and to health issues generally, not just mental health. Uh, uh, and then, you know, in the field of addiction. So there's, but, but I think the idea of empowering communities that have been unduly uh, penalized by decades of having the wrong policies when it came to the recreational use of cannabis, um, anything imaginative that could put money back into these communities, um, I think would be helpful. But as I said, the question of addiction is a kind of threshold between some drugs and others including in the legal pharmaceutical field, as we've seen with the opioid crisis. My last question for you is where Canada should go from here. We see Canada has legalized and regulated cannabis in keeping with calls from the commission to really start the regulation process with, with less harmful substances. We see an expansion of harm reduction initiatives, safe consumption sites, dozens have been approved in the last five years across the country. We now have federally funded safer supply initiatives as well. Again, an experimental regulatory framework. We already, by the way, between 2014 and 2019, we've seen the number of convictions cut in half for drug possession offenses simply operationally. And with C-22, we're going to see even more movement, I think, on a downward trajectory. When we look at where Canada goes from here, but also what other countries might be leading the way, what do you see coming next? Well, as I said, I think a, a much stronger engagement at the international level would be helpful. We still have a framework if we believe in international law and cooperation and so on. I think we really need to be to take the same kind of bold initiative um, internationally as we've done nationally. And I, I get it. I think early on, Canada didn't want to be necessarily viewed as a great champion of a policy that was to some extent experimental. You know, the legalization, decriminalization of, of marijuana. You know, you don't want to start day one saying, oh, this was a great success, only to find out that you have problems with the kind of the corporate overtake of the industry. Lots of issues that could have arisen. I think now we're in a much better position to be an example internationally and to advocate for a, the change that has to take place internationally. So this would be, um, to me, this would be a priority. And again, the continued investment you know, it should be guided by the constant need to shift from prohibition to health, from crime to health. Anything that goes in that direction with respect to all drugs is helpful. Well, Louise, I appreciate you letting me steal your time. And this was great. No, I, I'm so impressed that you're doing this kind of work. As I said, 10 years ago, we wouldn't, I don't think we would have believed that public officials, elected officials, would first have an interest in this issue beyond the usual platitude of let's continue the war on drugs. It's such a great success, which is not the case. So it's immensely encouraging. I think the work you're doing is terrific. Keep it up. I definitely will. I really appreciate it. And from my own perspective, we need as elected officials to, when we find these policy areas where the evidence, the international frameworks are getting in the way of right answers, we have to do everything we can to correct the situation. So I appreciate the commission's work and I will definitely be in touch. Good. Good to talk to you, Nate. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. A little bit of a different way to end, but to give a sense of how this podcast can impact my work directly, I'll leave you with a short clip from my recent speech on the government's new justice legislation, Bill C-22. 
the so-called war on drugs is an abject failure. And I'll read, this is from the Global Commission on Drug Policy. They write, the evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that repressive strategies will not solve the drug problem and that the war on drugs has not and cannot be won. Now, the long-term answer is regulation, that all drugs should be, in some cases, in many cases, strictly regulated, but regulated according to their respective harms, that caffeine is different from morphine, and they should be regulated, of course, differently. Again, this is the view of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, a commission made up of experts and former world leaders who have been deeply impacted by the failings of the war on drugs. They write, regulation and management of risky products and behaviors is a key function of government authorities across the world. It is the norm in almost all areas of policy and law, except drug policy. In the field of public health, when compared with policy responses to other risky behaviors, such as dangerous sports, unhealthy diets, or unsafe sex, it is punitive drug prohibitions that are the radical policy response, not regulation. Drugs should be regulated not because they are safe, but precisely because they are risky. Mm -hmm.